This podcast is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, one of the world's leading manufacturers of solar inverters. With 850 employees and offices in 16 countries, the company has sold 7 gigawatts of inverters for arrays of every size, from the smallest homes to the largest solar farms. To find out more, visit keiko-newenergy.com. For the week of February 5th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Greentech Media. Hello, welcome to the show all. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Greentech Media in Washington, D.C. This week, the libertarian Green Tea Coalition has emerged as a scrappy supporter of solar, working to open up new markets in the U.S. We will talk to the organization's co-founder, Debbie Dooley, about why tea partiers are rallying behind solar PV. Then, a new report concludes Europe way overpaid for its renewable energy. How could it have been avoided? Finally, Google may challenge Uber with its own ride-sharing service. Is it a new shot fired in the ride-sharing wars? With me, as always, to discuss these stories and to try to find some answers are my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Jigger is a cleantech investor and founder of Sun Edison, and he is joining us from New York. Howdy, Jigger. How are you? Hey, how are you? Oh, not bad. And with me in this fair capital city is Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you today? I'm doing great. You all were nice to move the time of this so I could go to my husband's going away lunch. And during the lunch, I have to tell you guys that Michael J. Fox drove by in a tricked-out DeLorean, just like in Back to the Future, wearing the same clothes and everything. And I don't know if you remember, but it was the year 2015 during the movie. Yeah, are you sure it was him? Have yes, it was. This? Yes, the Twitter the Twitter universe is going crazy. Although I'm not completely sure what the event is, but it was definitely him, and it was definitely the same car. Why wasn't I he riding it. a Tesla? <laughs> <laughs> that I was love, not in Back to the Future. <laughs> I have to say I love all these cultural references. Yesterday, uh, Jimmy Fallon did uh, Saved by the Bell episode on The Tonight Show. It's like good to be Generation X. Indeed. Well, uh, as regular listeners have heard us discuss before, the Green Tea Coalition has emerged as an influential pro-solar force in the southeast U.S. The organization may not have the money or the number of people that traditional green groups on the left do, but it does have intense determination to open up the grid to more competition. And that determination comes from the group's leader, Debbie Dooley, an energetic, self-professed, dangerous right-wing grandmother who believes distributed energy like solar is an important piece of personal freedom. And we are pleased to have Debbie on the show today. She is joining us from Georgia. Debbie, welcome to the Energy Gang. Great to have you on the show. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Absolutely. So I have to ask you, everyone in the press describes your partnership um, but which I believe was forged back in 2013 with the Sierra Club in Georgia as this unholy alliance or strange bedfellows, terms that I have called cliche just because they've been used so much. Uh, but that's just me. I'm curious how you describe your alliance with some groups on the left to promote solar. Well, I, I can tell you the term unholy alliance did not really originate with us. Uh, it originated with a lobbyist with Georgia Power, uh, 
that, you know, we were advocating for more solar, and he got up and spoke at a breakfast, and he said the Tea Party had formed an unholy alliance with Sierra Club, and they did not quite know what to do about it. Uh, I, I simply look at this as we're Americans coming together for a common purpose and a common goal, and we put differences aside. I've worked with, uh, you know, work with environmental groups, uh, the coalition that we formed. We also work with a with Christian coalition uh, as partners in a lot of states. They're a partner in Florida, hopefully in Indiana and a few of the other states. So, I mean, we have quite a coalition cobbled together. Yeah, indeed. So tell us how it, it started out in the first place. And when did solar actually become a big issue for you personally? I mean, Georgia was really the first battle in 2013, and you worked together with some of the other groups to convince regulators to expand Georgia Power's solar target by 525 megawatts. And, you know, more recently, they're considering opening up third-party sales in the state. And then, as you said, you're working um, now in Florida and in Indiana. And what sparked this mission for you? Why solar? Well, it was, uh, I was deeply concerned about Georgia Power and the fact that um, they had received uh, permission from the Georgia legislature that actually uh, passed a bill that allowed them to bill ratepayers rate in advance for two nuclear reactors at Plant Bundle. Uh, and also, they there was no limit. They make a guaranteed profit off the construction cost, and I found out you know, Georgia Power is expected to have uh, massive cost overruns. And uh, we first worked on legislation that would limit the profit they make on the cost overruns. Georgia Power opposed it. And I began to see the need for competition for these monopolies. I did a lot of investigation, and I found out that solar was ideal. It's decentralized energy. The average everyday citizen can't just go out and build a new power plant, and, but they can put solar panels on their rooftop. I liked it. I've always cared about the environment and because it's clean energy, and it provides free market choice, free market competition, and I also believe it's a national security issue. Two-party activists like the message because who doesn't like energy freedom, energy choice? We strongly believe in free market. We believe monopolies are the government's way of picking winners and losers, and we oppose that. So this was really a issue now uh, that two-party activists can embrace. They have to be educated, uh, conservatives in general do, because they have heard for years solar's bad, only tree hunters like solar. So it doesn't take long for me to simply lay the facts out, and they're, I mean, they're sold on solar and why we need to advocate. Debbie, I noticed that we we decided to call you on your cell phone. Do you have a landline phone? I do not have a landline phone. I mean, to me, this argument is is very similar to the arguments we were having in the 90s around you know, cutting the cord on the landline phone and giving people real choice between their landline phone and their mobile phone. I totally agree, and I actually, the reason I don't have a landline phone is because I never used it, and I may be 
telling my age, but I can remember when uh, AT&T was deregulated, the bell system. We had these, uh, you know, the phones at the time were the cordless phones that were the landline phones, huge landline phones. Only people that were extremely wealthy had cell phones. Uh, it cost an arm and a leg to call long distance. After deregulation, free market competition came into play and innovation took place. And our country and conservatives love innovation. And that's something that we should be standing behind and promoting solar, doing the same thing with solar that we did with the landline phones. Allow solar free market to compete in the free market and allow innovation to take place. So, Debbie, I have a question for you, which is that the energy sector is just it, there's there's not really the same kind of free market in that everyone gets subsidies. So the fossil fuel industry gets billions of dollars of, sub, of subsidies, most of which are permanent and will never go away. And the solar tax credit and, of course, the wind tax credit comes and goes and is now gone. But the solar tax credit is about to expire in 2016. How do you feel about tax credits? Like, Do you think that's something that people should be able to take advantage of or do you think they should all just go away? I believe that uh, if you subsidize, as you stated, fossil fuel, uh, coal, nuclear, are all very, very heavily subsidized with tax credits. If the government subsidizes some energy form but not the other, they are picking and choosing which energy form they prefer, and that's wrong. If they want to expire the solar tax credit, then they also need to expire all of the tax credit that fossil fuel and nuclear enjoys to be consistent. And if they don't, then the, the solar tax credit needs to be renewed. So let's talk about what you're up to now. You mentioned that you are going into Florida, and that state certainly has not lived up to its uh, Sunshine State nickname. Uh, regulators there have been you know, more than willing to back utilities in their efforts to stop efficiency in solar programs. And now a number of conservative business groups, as you said, and libertarians and, and others have come together to form this umbrella group, Floridan, Floridians for Solar Choice, to, uh, to push this ballot initiative in 2016 that would allow consumers to sell solar back onto the grid. Um, tell us about what's going on in Florida there. I mean, it's it's uh, shaping up to be quite the battle. It, it actually is. I mean, it's ridiculous for the Sunshine State to block the sun. Keep in mind, Florida's PSC is appointed, and con- is appointed by the governor and confirmed by the legislature, the Florida legislature. Contrast that with Georgia's PSC that's actually directly elected by the people and they are much more responsive to the needs and what's in the best interest of utility customers. Florida's PFC is much more responsive to donors, to political campaigns, and these giant monopolies. They are no longer looking out for the best interest of ratepayers. Uh, we are having a series of town halls in Florida uh, to actually talk about the impediment to solar and how Florida is blocking the sun. Solar is under attack nationwide. It's not just in Florida. Uh, and, and this is something people need to think about. In Florida, we tried to uh, pass legislation to open up the market for solar. 
for a number of years, uh, it went nowhere. So we felt like the only option was to actually uh, have a ballot referendum and let the people decide if they want to be allowed to have third-party sales of solar. Uh, all of this started, this attack on solar, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, who is very heavily backed by Koch brothers and fossil fuel interests, had their annual summit last summer. Uh, in the summit, they were encouraging Republican legislators to roll back any good legislation on solar, and they encouraged them not to pass any legislation uh, that would advance solar. They're protecting the interests of fossil fuel, and supposedly this is a group that's supposed to tell free market principles, and I guess they believe in free market principles, except when it comes to uh, their donors, and they want to look out for the best interests of their donors. Debbie, I was going to ask about the political um, issue because you have been doing a lot of state work, but I look at sort of what's happening on on the national stage and someone like Rand Paul, who is supposed to be a libertarian, but who is very heavily influenced by the Koch brothers. Charles Koch really likes him. They've given him a lot of money. The way he talks is, you know, oh, we can't do any more cylinders. We have to do more coal. And I just... Um, and I know he's from a coal state, but at the same right. time, I feel like we need to hel- hold the the folks who declare themselves libertarian accountable if they're if they're looking at technologies that are heavily subsidized. I, I totally agree. Uh, Rand Paul's running for president. Clearly, he does you know not believe in the free market. He believes in government protectionism, which violates free market principles. You have Scott Walker. Uh, in Wisconsin, he appointed their PSC, Wisconsin PSC, was appointed by the governor, and they recently uh, rolled back some of the, the forward progress of solar. He is a big government Republican that is in the pocket of big business. Koch brothers like him as well, and you can see that. Now, you have a Ted Cruz, on the other hand, who said, you know, strongly opposes monopolies. And he said some things about, you know, phasing out all energy subsidies. So I think he'll have a mix, but I think it's extremely hypocritical of Rand Paul to engage in protectionism of an industry. And this absolutely violates free market principles, and it's time people uh, start holding them accountable for this. How do we... How do we just get back to a place where, as you said in the beginning, that we're just all Americans fighting for energy freedom? Because I think that, you know, for me personally, you know, I've worked a lot at local and state levels, and I've found that almost universally we have support for our issues. Um, But there's just so much large, big money coming into these state races trying to influence people with their cash. And I just, I mean, I don't, I don't know how we actually get back to just looking at this from you know perspective of average Americans. Well, and I agree, and that's something that the, the group I started, Conservatives for Energy Freedom, we're the group that's active in Florida. And let me tell you the impact we have already had. There are legislators now, Republican legislatures, that are boldly proclaiming, I'm introducing this bill that will remove the tangible property tax on solar. 
at two other Republicans are introducing legislation to reform the Public Service Commission. That's all because they now have political cover. Uh, I have traveled to Wisconsin, South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi, and other states, and I hear the same thing from some of the Republican legislators. They want to do the right thing. They agree with us. But they have told me if we step out and do this, other groups like Americans for Prosperity are going to attack us. So we need you guys to know that there are groups out there that are conservative groups that will defend what they're doing. That's already made a difference in Florida. That's Debbie Dooley. She is the founder of the Green Tea Coalition and Conservatives for Energy Freedom. She joined us from her home in Georgia. Thanks again, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Yeah, thanks. Let's hear a little bit about our sponsor now, Keiko New Energy. All you solar installers out there, this one is for you, so listen up. Keiko is proud to announce its next-generation single-phase inverter for residential and small commercial projects. The TL1 series is offered in four different sizes and six different feature packages. Yes, six, so you can get exactly the right inverter for your project. The TL1 has dual MPPT channels to maximize energy harvest when facing shading or orientation challenges. The TL1 series uses advanced, lightweight materials and improved power density to decrease installation time, thus allowing for simple handling procedures and reduced equipment that must be installed near the inverter. You want to see more specs or talk to Keiko about it? Go on over to keiko-newenergy.com. A new report from the World Economic Forum concludes that Europe paid $100 billion too much for its renewable energy. According to the authors, most of Germany's 38 gigawatts of solar should have been installed in a sunnier country like Spain, and the 23 gigawatts of wind installed in Spain should have gone up in windier northern Europe. The authors argue that greater coordination between EU countries, including partnering on the build-out of transmission, connecting them, should have been a higher priority. Are they right, or are they just dreaming that such close coordination could actually exist? Uh, Catherine, your name was on the back of this report, (laughs) (laughs) and I know that you were at the World Economic Forum. Uh, What did you make of the conclusions drawn here? Well, it's funny. I wasn't in Davos, but I am in this little kind of cohort of people working on the future of electricity. I did not uh, write this report. So this was not your conclusion. Well, the thing is, like, I, I actually think that the that what you're saying, the conclusion isn't isn't really fully representative of the conclusion of the report. And the report did say that they had spent a lot more on renewables, but there's a but they also spent a lot on combined cycle units. The issue is that the demand has flattened, load factors have dropped, there's overcapacity. So the return on equity is dr- on investment has dropped. Well, but, that was just more of a conclusion about poor planning, yeah, beyond renewables. Yeah, so I but I feel like there's more to take away from this por- report, which is all right, look, they've already got all the renewables there, which is great. Now they need to do a little bit of adjusting. So they need to make sure that they put policies in place that create more certainty for investment. They need to get their market signals right. They need to allow flexible resources to fill in where the renewables can't help them, whether it's with efficiency or storage or demand response or all these other flexible they resources. Call those no regrets policies. Yeah, like go ahead and do that. And then also do um, a better planning process, a much more holistic planning process. I mean, they had all these different countries had goals and they tried to reach those goals the way that they thought they should. And they did bring down the carbon intensity significantly. The issue was that 
you know, they just they just didn't look very holistically. So I don't think it's all bad on the part of renewables. I think there's a much um, bigger narrative about how they need a plan going forward. Yeah, absolutely. That 100 billion number was just a small piece of the report, and they use it as an example to explain why countries should have coordinated more. But I couldn't help but feeling that the conclusion itself was uh, not exactly accurate or reflective of how the power markets in Europe work. And, and I just can't I can't see how planning like installing all the solar in Spain instead of Germany would actually work. I mean, that's like saying California should install wind and they should leave it to Iowa and Minnesota shouldn't install solar, but leave it to Texas. Am I wrong on that? No, I mean, I think they need to use what they've got. They've already got all these assets out there that are useful and that they can use if they then bring in other flexible resources to help them manage them. So I I don't think that it means that they have to not focus on the wind in Spain. I think they need to be able to figure out how do we use it better. This has got to be the dumbest report I've seen in almost <laughs> the longest time. Basically, what you're saying here is that, you know, that like New Jersey shouldn't be putting in solar or Massachusetts shouldn't be putting in solar. These guys all have the right to do whatever the hell they want to do, and they're doing it. That's great. Now, they could have improved themselves, as I've said multiple times, that they should have had a volumetric reduction in the subsidy so that people weren't able to rape and pillage the subsidy programs of Europe like they did. But we've done all of these wonderful things is now by the World Economic Forum, who's basically the fossil fuel, you know, like – cheerleaders in chief are saying, oh, we did it too quickly or we did it, you know, without foresight is absolutely ridiculous. No one should read this report. <laughs> well, I, but the thing is, I actually don't think that was the main thrust of the report anyway. I felt like that piece of the report was taken and that was what people wrote about. But I don't I did not think that that was the main point of it anyway. Well, what was the main point of the report then? I think it was, what, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? And like, how do we work with what we've got? Um, we've already reached a lot of goals, but how do we create new ones that make sense, you know, in the context of the entire EU? So I felt like it was sort of like, okay, here's where we are. Now, what do we do going forward? Could they have structured it better in hindsight? Of course. So could the U.S. on healthcare. But the, the Europeans basically, you know, helped to catalyze with Japan this entire boom in solar and wind and fuel cells and anaerobic digesters and battery storage. And they should be proud of that. And they shouldn't be apologizing through the World Economic Forum. Well, we'll let our readers decide. I'm going to link to this report on the podcast page. So you can take Jigger's advice and ignore the report, or you can uh, decide for yourself. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can read it and see that that's not the main point that they made. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's OK. All right. Well, let's go on to the third topic. The uh, leading ride sharing company, Uber, it's now valued at 40 billion dollars, but it could be facing a threat from a company worth more than 350 billion dollars and perhaps in the coming years worth a trillion dollars. That is Google. Google is a major investor in Uber and has provided uh, the financial resources to help it wage battles with taxicab commissions and grow the service in new cities. But according to a report from Bloomberg this week, Google has informed Uber that it has plans to start its own ride-sharing service, and this one might use uh, or is reportedly using self-driving cars. So is Uber already in trouble, uh, or is it now big enough to combat the threat? Jigger, what do you think? Any reactions to this news? Well, I think you guys already know my opinion on Google. I think they announce all sorts of crap and don't follow through. So this will be another place where they announce a bunch <laughs> of crap and don't follow through. So I don't think Uber has anything to worry about. Google has no intention of ever being an effective competitor on anything but search and maps. 
Well, Google, for its part, isn't commenting on this, so we don't even really know. And there was a Wall Street Journal article out a day or two later that uh, seemed to indicate that Google was actually working on some carpooling app and not a ride-sharing app that was directly competitive with Uber. So um, we don't even really have the definitive answer on this. But I will say that uh, let's suppose that's true, that Google tries to roll out a self-driving car-sharing service that would directly compete with Uber. It certainly has a lot of advantages. Uh, Uber uses its Google Maps, so it could pull that out. And if Uber hasn't properly put together its own mapping service or it's using another subpar mapping service, that could be a big problem. And God knows I've been with plenty of Uber X drivers that don't know where the heck they're going. Um, Google just has crazy name recognition, right? I mean, even if it starts an app years after Uber's gotten off the ground, it has the resources to funnel into this effort to to scale it. So there are some things perhaps that, and it knows how to fight these battles too. I think it's already spent the money alongside Uber so that it understands how, how to get this stuff moving. The big unknown, I think I saw a lot of journalists saying that this is a huge threat to Uber. First of all, we don't really know exactly because Google hasn't announced it. And secondly, getting self-driving cars truly yeah. on the roads is going to yeah. take years. And this at is that what point, I was going to say. Yeah. Like, what do you mean they have everything? These are self-driving cars, people. Who's going to get into one? Yep. I mean, I'm, 50 years from now, people are going to be in them. But like right now, I don't think that's the huge threat. Like, Anne, like, do you think that Google revolutionized you know, geothermal energy through their investments there? Do you think that they've created a monopoly on on thermostats because of Nest? Do you think that, like, they've figured out alternative reality because of Google Glass? I mean, name one area where Google spent a crap load of money on PhDs and then outcompeted someone in the marketplace other than search and other than maps. It's absurd to say that Google hasn't dominated in Nest or to make a conclusion about what Google's done in the thermostat area or the connected home because they really haven't put a lot of effort in there. And quite frankly, the geothermal stuff and power generation stuff that they did through Google Philanthropies uh, was not close to their core business at all. This is much closer to their core business. They've been working on self-driving cars for a couple of years now. And combined with their mapping service, I think this hits a lot closer to home for Google. So, okay, so tell me, tell me this. Who do you think comes out with a self-driving car that is competitive in the marketplace first, Tesla or Google? I, I don't know. I'm not ready to make that conclusion. I will guarantee you that it's Tesla and not Google. I think that this thing is just ridiculous. I'm so tired of Google. You know, look, I am, I am so happy that they're spending all this money on PhDs, and it, they are doing the world an incredible service by replicating Bell Labs. But to suggest for a moment that Google has, has ever proven that they can actually take stuff from the lab to commercialization is ridiculous. Well, I think where folks like Google and others, I wouldn't limit it to Google, are going to have more of an impact in the near term is going to be on driver assistive technologies, which is what the my friends at the Electric Drive Transportation Association say that that so, you know, the the conversation about driverless cars is so future oriented, but more people are talking about automation kind of generally in cars. And so that's where something like an app would would work really well to assist drivers in various ways, um, you know, within within the traditional or electric vehicle. Yeah, interesting. And Uber itself announced like a day after this story broke that it was starting this program on self-driving cars at Carnegie Mellon University called the Uber 
Advanced Technologies Center. My guess is that there is definitely something going on behind the scenes here, and they feel like they need to get into this uh, self-driving business pretty quickly and get some research done. Jigger, I'm curious, what do you hate more, Google or the Energy Information Administration? <laughs> no, but the thing is, I mean, well, it's the Energy Information Administration. I don't hate <laughs> Google. What I hate about this are these stories. Like, I don't like the fact that people actually are are deliberately hurting entrepreneurs' ability to raise money in this space by always trotting out Google. Google is going to continue to do this stuff all the time. But if there's an entrepreneur who has a special way of doing geothermal, I think they're going to beat Google. If there's an entrepreneur that has a special way of figuring out how to get people to use an app to call a taxi, I think they're going to beat Google. And I think Google's okay with that. I think Google wants to be a software platform and collect a ton of data. So I think they want all of Uber's data and they want to use that data to make their apps more um, like you know successful for their customers like maps etc i don't think google actually has any intention of competing with any of these companies and every time reporters trot out google they actually hurt all these entrepreneurs that are trying to innovate your point is taken for some of the after reporting and speculation from bloggers and journalists but i will defend the original story which basically just said that Google has its chief legal officer on Uber's board. It has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the company. And now Uber has apparently seen screenshots of a new ride-sharing service that Google plans to roll out in conjunction with self-driving cars. That in and of itself is an important story that needs to be told. And I will defend the journalism behind this piece, assuming, well, assuming, well, assuming the story actually plays out because there are some conflicts that Wall Street Journal has reported. Look, I'm happy to like... I'm happy to like, you know, give the journalists their due or whatever it is that you want me to do. But my point is basically that this story comes up all the time. How many times do we keep talking about Google? It's like I think one time on this on the podcast we talked about how Google was going to transform demand response and residential, you know, um, you know, the the residential home or whatever. No, they're not. I guarantee you they're not. By the way, it's just it's not the journalist's role to worry about whether it's going to hurt investors or not to report this story. I don't think that we should be judging this article based on whether it hurts other investors' ability to get money in the marketplace. But I think we should be judging ourselves for talking about it again. (laughs) We could go on and on on this. All right, let's wrap it up. And uh, we will tell our listeners something they don't know um, or hopefully something they don't know. And I will start first this time because I'm happy to say that the official tally is in. Um, after a couple of weeks of talking about this, two of our listeners uh, tallied up our Tell Me Something I Don't Know segments. Uh, Dustin Zubicki and Matthew Klippenstein both sent me Excel spreadsheets outlining all the times I called on Catherine or Jigger first for this segment. Uh, Dustin charted the uh, mentions out and showed that until about mid-June of last year, things were pretty even. And then I started calling on Catherine a lot more. And Matthew, ha- in his Excel spreadsheet, wrote comments and uh, provide a little play-by-play of every time one of you complained about going too much or going too little uh, or whenever I reversed myself. Uh, because, of, because of a little miscount, I think on a, like a guest show or something, the numbers were just a couple off from each other, but they tell the same story. I've called on Jigger almost, almost, as, or, yeah, Jigger almost twice as much as Catherine. Matthew has Catherine at 40. and oh, Excuse me, I've called on Catherine almost twice as much as Jigger. 
Matthew has Catherine at 40 and Jigger at 23, and Dustin has Catherine at 38 and Jigger at 25. So, Jigger, you were right. Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to give them another math problem, which is that uh, during the course of the stories, sometimes if there are three stories, you'll call in Jigger to to comment first on two of the stories and me on one or vice versa. You've gotten a little more even on that, but I think that may have been your attempt to kind of even it up. Well, if you want to boost our listener numbers, you can go through each segment of every episode and tally those, and then you'll give us, you know, a few hundred more downloads. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Dustin and Matthew for those logs. And uh, Jigger, I suppose that means you get to go next. Nice, nice. Well, I just wanted to um, highlight a, uh, a, a an opinion poll that happened in the UK recently around solar being the most popular energy generation technology in the UK. And, you know, I think that what this says is that, you know, these these political parties who really come out against solar, which David Cameron's government really did, um, you know, I think, you know, really have to look themselves in the mirror before they actually do that. There really is no benefit for these parties to come out and bash solar, you know, in the view of our European report, um, the UK doesn't get a lot of sun either, but, um, but bashing solar, not a good thing. Catherine, what do you got? Finally. Okay. (laughs) So, so I was earlier this week, uh, at the electric power and light conference. It's a utility CEO conference. And I was brought in to be the resident disruptor. There was a, a panel with EEI and American public power, New York ISO, and then myself. It was a great conversation. What was interesting to me was that, uh, the utilities were very much more focused on being closer to the customer. And this was reflected in the World Economic Forum report, too, that Jigger hated so much, um, but about how utilities are trying to change their thinking. And this was kind of affirmed the utility dive just came out with a report, the 2015 State of the Electric Utility Survey, and they, they surveyed over 400 electric utility executives. And the utilities are, you know, they here are some of the findings. They want to move away from the traditionally vertically integrated model to a more distributed model. Um, They think their biggest growth opportunities are distributed energy, customer relationship, and transmission. Their three most pressing challenges are old infrastructure, aging workforce, and the current regulatory model, which I thought was interesting. Um, And they, and they see like no growth, load growth. So they have to try to figure out what else they can do. And so what was interesting is that everybody thinks that there's this huge opportunity in distributed energy, but they're just not sure of what the business models are, and they don't they aren't, aren't sure what the regulatory model is. So I just find that an interesting snapshot. I think the utilities are poised to change, and some of them will. As much as I hate the term prosumer, it is definitely the uh, word of the year last year, one of the words of the year last year, maybe even 2013. It's been thrown around for the last couple of years now, but utilities are starting to get serious around that strategy. I should nominate for this year the words unholy alliances, maybe our <laughs> word of the year. <laughs> It sounds really fun. (laughs) (laughs) That is the end of the show, folks. All of our back episodes and subscription options can be found at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. We rely on reviews and word of mouth to grow our listeners. So if you can please uh, leave us a review at iTunes or Stitcher, we would greatly appreciate it. And send a link to people in your networks, your friends, your colleagues. I'm sure they'll love the show. Thanks to our devoted listeners uh, and thanks to our sponsor, Keiko New Energy, for helping bring this podcast to all our listeners. Catherine, you have yourself a good week. Great. Thanks, you too. See you later, Jigger. Have a good one. Yeah, by the way, I'm going to be playing in St. Louis this weekend. I'm going to be 
keynoting the uh, Missouri Solar Energy Association conference. Oh, I thought you said play, like playing as in playing in a band. No, playing as playing in like around. like like Your Bill Maher does that. Yeah, exactly. Bill Maher does that at the end of his show. Is like you know, and this week I'll be in these three cities. So <laughs> awesome. Well, playing with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We will catch you next week.